Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro packed his government full of military men when he took office in 2019. We look at just how politicized the military has now become. The president talks about the military almost as his Praetorian Guard. And zooarchaeologists in modern Spain are using animal bones from 700-year-old trash to learn about people left out of history. We can shed light into the identity of these communities through the study of trash. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London, and you're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. In Brazil, like in many countries, serving members of the military are not allowed to participate in political rallies. But that's just what Army General Eduardo Pazuello did in late May. He appeared at a rally alongside Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro in Rio de Janeiro. Pazuello is a controversial figure. He served as health minister during the worst months of the pandemic, before he was sacked by Bolsonaro in March this year. But that hasn't appeared to dampen his support for the president. Despite the outcry at Pazuello's appearance at the rally, the head of the army exonerated him from any wrongdoing in early June. All this happened just a few months after the three heads of Brazil's armed forces, the army, navy and air force, resigned en masse in March after the sacking of the defence minister, himself a reserve army general. The army, the navy and the air force chiefs all quit as Bolsonaro's government faces mounting pressure over its response to coronavirus. The decision not to sanction Pazuello flies in the face of the strict protocol and discipline normally upheld within the Brazilian military. And it's angered many within the armed forces. Their concern is that Pazuello escaped punishment because Bolsonaro would have simply overturned any sanctions placed on the general anyway. Basically, the head of the army didn't want to have his authority undermined publicly. And there's also concern that this might give other members of the military a green light to openly show their support for Bolsonaro ahead of presidential elections next year. The incident shows just how close-knit and complex the relationship between Bolsonaro and the military has become. And yet it's a relationship which has formed the backbone of Bolsonaro's administration since he became president. To understand why all this matters, we've spoken to two experts in Brazil's military. Bolsonaro's administration is profoundly militarized. Half of the ministers are generals, including in key positions. This is Maud Chirio. I am an historian. I am a teacher at uh, Gustave Eiffel University in France. And I am a specialist of uh, the Brazilian military dictatorship. In recent years, Maud's also been doing research on the military extreme right and has recently contributed a chapter to a new book on the issue. The backdrop here is Jair Bolsonaro's rise to power and the comeback of the military. As soon as the results were in... An impromptu military parade in the Brazilian city of Niteroi, celebrating the victory of President Bolsonaro Jair Bolsonaro. has won Brazil's presidential race. The Bolsonaro is a far-right former army captain, badged as the Trump of the tropics by some. He has a history of using homophobic, misogynistic and racist language. He served in Brazil's Congress for three decades as a member of far-right parties, but when he ran for office in 2018, he positioned himself as a political outsider. Bolsonaro needs the military to exercise power because he has no party, he had no staff, and he, he was a nobody in the political scene, and he, he needed what we call the military party 
to fill his administration and his governance. It's not just top positions of state, such as the Chief of Staff and the Minister of Defence, that have been filled by serving and retired military men. It's happening across the federal administration. Thousands of officers are now ruling the state, assuming missions that have nothing to do with external defence and being paid for that in a very similar way that it was in the 70s during the, the dictatorship. Brazil's military dictatorship began in 1964 with a military coup, supported by the US government. It lasted 21 years until 1985, a period marked with the torture and disappearances of many of the regime's opponents. The dictatorship was part of a longer history, though, where the military has never been far from power. When we look at the history of the Brazilian Republic uh, since its proclamation through a military coup at the end of the 19th century, the Republic has always been marked by the presence of the military. Uh, There were moments when they were more discreet, but they never really were distant from power. After the military dictatorship ended in 1985, Maud says that the system which followed, called the New Republic, was kind of an exception. Because the military has been, during 30 years, really removed from the centre of power. But it it doesn't mean that the armed force lost all power, not at all. Uh, The army has remained a powerful and autonomous institution during the civil democracy. But another expert that I've spoken to told me that things began to change after Luis Inacio Lula da Silva and his Workers' Party came to power in 2003. My name is Vinicius Mariano de Carvalho. I'm senior lecturer for Brazilian studies at King's College London, teaching in the Department of War Studies, and also I'm director of King's Brazil Institute here at King's. His research interests are multiple and very varied. I do since literature and music, to defence and security. As part of this, he studies the relationship between the military and civilian authorities in Brazil, and he knows the Brazilian military from the inside. Well, I joined the army after my PhD. I was not a young uh, boy anymore. I was uh, after my 30s, and I joined as a lieutenant in the technical course in the army. And it was a very interesting experience also to learn and to understand the logics inside an institution like the armed forces. What I saw was a bunch of Uh, professionals that really want to be professionals in what they do. They want to to build up an army that corresponds to the size of Brazil, to the strategic importance of the country. This was during Lula's presidency. It was a time when the army was tasked with some big strategic projects, such as the surveillance of the Amazon region. And it received a lot of resources for it. Vinicius says that it was after this, and particularly when Dilma Rousseff succeeded Lula as president in 2011, that more military personnel started getting called back to political service. Retired generals in positions of ministers or in other agencies of the government. And also we saw an increasing dependence on the military for what are civilian affairs, basically or providing public service to to Brazilian population. Engineer battalions were tasked with building roads. The military stepped in to provide water to the drought-prone northeastern region and to help with other natural disasters. And the military's role in public security increased, particularly in the notoriously dangerous favelas. Ground forces that often struggle to access Rio's favelas now have help. Snipers on helicopters. From Lula's government on, the deployment of the armed forces as police in what is called in Brazil guarantee of law and order operations increased systematically. Michelle Temer succeeded Rousseff in 2016 after she was impeached following a huge corruption scandal known as Operation Car Wash. 
A few years later, Temer then put the public security of Brazil's second biggest city in the hands of a general. The Minister of Defense today, General Braga Neto, was nominated as the interventor for the public security in Rio de Janeiro for one year. So the population started to see the military as those guys that you call for everything and they do the job. So everywhere that we should be building a civilian capacity that was being delegated to military to do this job. The deployment of armed forces in response to public security issues, it was very common and, curiously speaking, much less in Bolsonaro's government. We have military much more in the public posts, but not doing so much this sort of guaranteeing law and order operation. Why do you think that is? For the military, especially the professional military, that was seen like, okay, we are being misused here. We are military for the defense of the country, not to be police. That's the role of police forces. So I think to please the military that was not happy with that, Bolsonaro reduced their participation in this sort of public security operations. But they are still involved in the Amazonian issues like deforestation or the Operação Verde Brasil, Green Brazil operation that was led by military. Let's take a moment here to focus on the Amazon and this Operation Green Brazil, because it's a good illustration of the way the military fulfills the role of the state in this area of the country. Vinicius gave me a bit of a lesson here in the history of the development of the Amazon. Brazilian is colonized through the coast, so the countryside, and especially the Amazonian jungle, naturally, colonization there was not so intense. We still have lots of indigenous people living there, riverine populations, but the idea of development that started back in the 50s saw the Amazon as a place to be conquered. The Amazon was always associated with bringing more people from the southeast, south to the region, to build roads, to bring a business, to make profitable the Amazonia. Uh, this process never stopped. As part of this strategy, many administrations have relied heavily on the military in the way they govern the Amazonia region. And the presence of the armed forces there has been increasing systematically since the 1950s. Brazilian army has a strategy of border platoons all over the, the border of Brazilian Amazonia. Several platoons formed about 60 soldiers, most of them with many indigenous people also serving as soldiers there. And, and that's the only presence of state in the middle of nowhere. They bring healthcare, sometimes education, communication, etc. Some cities in the Amazonia Half of the population are from the armed forces. The rainforest is being consumed by fire. Large swaths of the Amazon rainforest. The smoke is traveling. Largest rainforest in the world, pockmarked with blazes. When the destruction of the Amazon from fires in mid-2019 made headlines around the world, Bolsonaro launched Operation Green Brazil to guarantee law and order. The only organ of state with capacity to patrol deep into the jungle with helicopters and all the logistics that go with it is the military. The decree signed by Bolsonaro that means that the Brazilian military now stands ready to fight these wildfires. In the but there is a question here. Armed forces are not justice. They are not environmental agents. Uh, so if they don't come together with the Minister of Justice, with the environmental agencies, with the indigenous foundation of Brazil, they can be there, they can detect deforestation, but they can do nothing else because they don't have authority to do anything else that would be the next steps to arrest, prosecute, define what to do with that, for instance, trees that have been lodged and even execute mandates of criminal arrest, etc. According to government data reported by Reuters, deforestation surged to a 12-year high in 2020, 
And yet in April this year, the military wound down its Operation Green Brazil. Vinicius says the withdrawal is likely because of the fundamental ineffectiveness of throwing money at the army to solve the problem. It will be good for a PR, will be good propaganda, saying that, look how we are uh, addressing the issue. But indeed we are not, because the agencies that really are responsible for tracking the environmental issues, they have been defunded, they have been reduced in their capacities. So reducing budget of agencies of uh, environmental fiscalization and deploying more the army and therefore spending more money with them, it will not solve the problem of deforestation. For Vinicius, this influx of military personnel into Bolsonaro's government is linked to this longer history of over-dependence on the military by successive Brazilian governments. It has to do with this mystification or misunderstanding of why we need to have military in a country like Brazil. From the end of the dictatorship up to 2018, a military build-up among the population that they are there for whatever you need, you can trust. They build up a sort of an idea that we are not corrupt, as civilian politicians are. And Bolsonaro associating his own image to the military actually helped him to be elected. Because, okay, if you like the military, you should like me because I am a former military and I will put a lot of military in my government. But the, the, the difference is that politics, it's not a caserna, it's not a barrack in which you give orders and the other follow the orders. So military are not really used to the necessary elements of negotiations and debate that we have in the political arena. Vinicius was careful to stress that the military doesn't act with a unified view or political theory. An institution like the armed forces, in the case of Brazil, we are probably talking about 350 to 400,000 people. There is no way that we can say that all the military think together. It's difficult to say that military can be seen as an as a ideological singular group. And inside this, the individual armed forces, yes, we will have people that are very supportive of Bolsonaro, that think that uh, he is, he's in the right direction and their role as military is also right. And we will have also people that are absolutely against that. And yet Bolsonaro treats the military as if he controls them. In a TV interview in April, he claimed that the military would follow his orders to take to the streets if he ordered them to. Despite being f- originally from the armed forces, President Bolsonaro sometimes seems that is not understanding exactly what are the roles of the military in a constitutional government. Sometimes the president talks about the military almost as his Praetorian guard, that he can use and do whatever he wants without really the, the approval of the Congress or even the solid support from the Supreme Court. For Maud Chirio, the military's return to the heart of government under Bolsonaro is part of a wider project of power. Many military men are convinced that Brazil is facing such a crisis, a a political and moral crisis, that the management of the state and the main public policies have to be decided and assumed by military men. She believes that this is why some of the top-ranking members of the military chose Bolsonaro as their preferred candidate as a way to reach power. To understand why, she says, you have to go back to the 1990s, when a new wave of right-wing political theories were imported into Brazil from the US. Specifically, the theory of cultural Marxism, uh, which says that communism has not died uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, but has turned into a cultural project, which is to destroy traditional Christian values and families. So the communism has new faces, and these new faces are feminism, 
black in indigenous movements, LGBT movements, pro-environment uh, mobilizations, including any social democrat projects. And this theory considers that there is a global conspiracy. The alleged conspiracy here involves political parties, especially the Workers' Party of President Lula, as well as unions and intellectuals. But it also brought in international players like the UN and non-governmental organisations who, as the conspiracy goes, plan to replace Christian values in Latin America with progressive Marxism and multiculturalism. That's what has been imported in Brazil by a self-declared Brazilian philosopher who is called Olavo de Carvalho, who now lives in the United States. Moore says that after Carvalho imported this theory of cultural Marxism into Brazil in the late 90s, began to interest some military thinkers. It first seduced retired extreme right officers, many of them ex-fighters against communism, what we call the hardliners. But then it gained audience within the active forces in the end of the 2000s and the beginning of the 2010s. In the past decade, these ultra-conservative views have grown, both within the military and the wider population, she says. But within the army, such theories were used to justify the idea that the civilian democracy and the political classes who run it should be replaced and that the military could step up to do that. Because the theory says that Brazil is at war. And for that, it needs a strong government with skilled, courageous and anti-communist people, conscious of the reality of the war. And that is the military. Nostalgia for the military dictatorship has also influenced Bolsonaro's way of governing, says Maud. The fact that it's highly militarized, obsessed by communism, uh, convinced that there is uh, still internal enemies hiding within popular classes, all of this is closely linked to the recent past and the dictatorship. This brutal period of Brazil's history continues to have such a hold over those in power today, she says, because the transition to democracy after it ended was so flawed. The Brazilian democratic transition after the dictatorship has been profoundly incomplete. It has been a transition with no justice, no condemnation of the state violence by the authorities till the National Truth Commission under Dilma Rousseff's presidency. This National Truth Commission was tasked with investigating human rights abuses in Brazil during the military dictatorship. Brazil's military dictatorship committed crimes against humanity. So says the country's National Truth Commission, which recommends that the state's torturers lose their immunity from prosecution. The commission began its work in 2012, based on the witness accounts of over a thousand people, and published its findings in a report in 2014, with what Maud says was the worst possible timing. It happened in a moment when the centre-left government of Dilma Rousseff was very fragilised by scandals, uh, affairs and economic crisis and demonstration. So uh, the consequence has been that the narrative of the National Truth Commission, which is a purely uh, human rights narrative, has been considered as a leftist and communist. It was totally counterproductive. So... Without a surprise, it has created a very fertile ground for ultra-conservative theories. Another part of this incomplete democratic transition is that the image of the Brazilian military hasn't suffered from the dictatorship. They've remained popular for most of the period since. When you see the polls from the 80s, the image and the confidence in some institutions, such as the Congress, parties, unions, press, is very low. And the army 
still benefits from a high confidence. Now many of the generals are back in power with Bolsonaro, things are changing. And it's in power in a government that is more and more unpopular. So for the first time since the 80s, uh, the army begins to lose confidence in the polls. The dismal failure of the government to deal with the coronavirus pandemic has compounded Bolsonaro's slump in the polls. She thinks the top military brass will be thinking hard about whether the institution of the army will be damaged by its role within the Bolsonaro administration and the catastrophic management of the pandemic. I think that some military do not want to sink with Bolsonaro's ship and the high commands has begun to divide. Some continue to believe that Bolsonaro can and has to be re-elected and is still the best guardian of, on one hand, military interests, and on the other hand, the only real ultra-conservative leader on the political scene. But some others think that there is a need to find a new horse to remain in power. Maud says that this all came to a head in March, when the commanders of the three armed forces resigned en masse. It was clearly a sign that parts of the high commands have been more and more reluctant to support the president, due to the catastrophic management of the pandemic and the sinking in the polls, and maybe the perspective of a real political alternative with the restitution of the political rights to ex-president Lula. Lula was put in prison in 2018 for corruption, but was released in November 2019. After years of judicial battle, a Supreme Court judge on Monday annulled the convictions against Lula. And he's recently announced his candidacy for the 2022 elections. The polls already announced that uh, Lula, if it continues that way, can win at the first round. Maud says the big question here is how those military who've held political power again under Bolsonaro will react to a Lula victory. How uh, far our members of ICOMMENS are willing to, to go to remain at the centre of power? And what role it plays the Bolsonarist activists and militias, uh, which is a, another question. Because we do know that the assault of the U.S. Capitol has been an inspiration uh, for these activists and militias, and that the members of Bolsonaro's family are already getting organized to build their own intelligence forces and very probably will try whatever it takes to escape prison. Stepping back from all this, I asked Vinicius what he thought needed to happen in the longer term for Brazil to demilitarize its politics. I think it's extremely important that we start to reduce the dependence on the military for the execution of public policies in Brazil. Military should be designated for defense issues. The second point is actually immediately remove all these military from political positions. And if they are retired, they are retired. If they are uh, still on active duty, they should be back to barracks where they should be executing their, their own work. He worries that Brazilian politicians, whatever their political persuasion, have come to rely on the military for too much. And that's the real danger. We need also, from the civilian side, to stop to give to the military a political position. It's very common in Brazil when the president changes a minister, people ask, so what the military think about that? That's a question that we should never ask. You can read a piece that Maud Chirio has written about the militarization of the Brazilian government in both English and French, and we'll put some links in our show notes to that.
We're taking a quick time out here to tell you about another podcast from Pushkin that we think you'll like, Cautionary Tales. Host Tim Harford draws on history and social science to vividly retell the stories of great crimes, accidents and disasters of the past, pointing out valuable lessons for us all from the dithering, death and destruction. You'll ride with the Light Brigade as they charge headlong to certain death, watch the trial of the art forger who fooled the Nazis, and shudder at the deeds of a kindly doctor who was in fact killing his patients. You can binge the entire season of Cautionary Tales right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now on to our second story. Gemma, quick question. What was the last thing you threw away in your kitchen? I think it was probably a tea bag that I put in our compost. Okay, so if someone was to dig through your compost and found a tea bag, they could learn a lot about you. You have trade access to teas. You can boil hot water. There's all sorts of information in there. That I like tea too, obviously. Oh, yes, that too. And that idea, learning from people's kitchen trash, is exactly what zooarchaeologists do. Animal bones from a dig site in Cordoba, Spain, which was under Muslim rule in the Middle Ages, are now helping researchers to learn about marginalized people that are left out of history. My name is Marcos Garcia, and I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Archaeology of the University of York in the UK. My field is called zooarchaeology, and it deals with the study of animal remains recovered from archaeological sites. And this type of studies provide clues about the relationships established in the past between humans and animals from different uh, perspectives. What time periods are you studying in? I do medieval, medieval zooarchaeology, and specifically the period that it's called Al-Andalus, which is the Islamic period here in Iberia from the 8th until the 15th century. This is the particularity of the Iberian Peninsula, which is located in Europe, but it has also a very interesting Islamic history. Uh, so provide us the opportunity to study the relationships between different societies with different religions in Europe. Obviously, you can't go back to Andalusia and see what the Iberian Peninsula was looking like. What do you study? Well, in particular, what I'm most interested in are those deposits that can be identified as remains of food consumption of animal products. Waste deposits are real treasures, given that they provide us with information about the daily lives of common people, which is what we are most interested in. I prefer a deposit or a pit filled with rubbish than maybe a king's or a queen's burial or something like that. If you let me to add something to, to this idea, transculturally, women were the those responsible for food preparation. And this is also a, a way to provide, a, let me see, a feminist perspective of history about women's work in the past. So, Marcos, let's get into the specifics of your recent work. Um, what is the site you were just published this paper on? Where is it? Give me kind of the historical context of this place. I am currently part of the research project titled Landscapes of Reconquest, which is led by Professor Alex Pluskowski from Reading, Michelle Alexander from York, and Guillermo Garcia Contreras from the University of Granada, and it's funded by the British Arts and Humanities Research Council. So as part of this project, but also in the framework of my PhD thesis, I studied the archaeological material from a site called Cercadilla, which is in Córdoba in current Andalusia in southern Iberia. The chronology of this site is very interesting because it expands from the 8th 
until the 12th century. Iberia was conquered by the Umayyad dynasty in the year 711 and became part with the new name of Al-Andalus until the 15th century of the Islamic medieval world. And this period was characterized by heterogeneous society. It was ruled by Muslims, but with the important presence of Christian and Jewish populations, at least until the 12th century, when written sources revealed that non-Muslim communities were expelled from Al-Andalus. Among other samples of animal remains, I study the material recovered from a settlement dated in the 12th century in Cercadilla, the site in Córdoba, of the human group that lived there in this period. And the historical knowledge or assumption was that the Christians and Jews had been expelled by this point, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that along the 12th century, they were expelled. So we have the opportunity to study one sample that it's dated according to both the ceramics and the money, well, the coins, to the 12th century, to this same period. Okay. And um, what did you find and what did you learn from this that was surprising? Five years ago, there was a general idea that there were no Christians in Córdoba or in Al-Andalus in the 12th century, but in recent years, while contributing to generate a more uh, complex idea about the social composition of Al-Andalus or medieval Iberia, the most particular result is the dominance of big remains among the material. Even if we cannot know the exact taxonomic identification of these remains, meaning if they belonged to domestic pig or wild boar, we have to bear in mind that the consumption of both animals was prohibited as part of the dietary rules of medieval Islam. As Muhammad bin Khayda, which is one of the most recognized specialists in the anthropological study of food in Islam, points out, we cannot eat pork and consider ourselves as Muslims. The avoidance of pork is then one of the most remarkable cultural traits of Muslim populations. On the other hand, on the floor of one of the ruins of the site, we identified as appears a scalloped shell of those traditionally associated with the pilgrimage to the shrine of uh, St. James in Santiago de Compostela in northern Iberia. Mm. And so we've now been able to date a Christian presence in this town. What other questions can you ask and do you hope to ask with animal remains found in these dig sites? Well, this is also interesting because the anatomical distribution of the remains of pigs in Cercadilla are very particular. They are dominated by those parts of the hind limb of the, of the animals. This is not very common because if they were breeding these animals on site, the typical thing will be to identify the whole skeleton of the animals. We are suggesting that they were uh, introducing parts of the animals already prepared, but not locally. So one of the next steps that we would like to, uh, to research in these bones will be to do isotopic analysis of these bones in order to know if we are dealing with domestic pigs or wild boar. No, I mean, that's very interesting uh, what you're saying. It's just the back legs. I'm picturing, you know, somebody coming in with like a ham leg yeah, and then yeah. bringing it and selling it in town or kind of. <laughs> exactly. What other stuff can you learn from studying waste heaps? We can learn lots of things, actually, about how people 
not only thought in the past, but also how they behaved. We present the results of another sample of animal bones. In this case, comes from Granada and is dated in the early 16th century. Granada was conquered by the Christians in 1492, but in the 16th century, there was, uh, well, we identify a sample of animal bones where there was no pig remain at all. And also these people were consuming in a typhoid, which is a kind of communal bowl. So this implies a typical Islamic and then Andalusian way of consumption. So this is interesting also because we are now uh, in this kind of 16th century, we are in the Christian period, but there were still Muslim populations living here before they were expelled in the early 17th century. Even when people is consuming the same ceramics, they are eating different stuff, and we can then shed light into the identity of these peoples, of these communities, through the study of their trash. And I really like what you just said there, to shed light on communities, because it seems like the things you've just described are all communities that were uh, hidden and left out of history. Do you feel like your work tends to find things that those in power in, throughout history have tried to hide? Yeah, I think so. As we know, there is the power of the wealthy people who have the power to write and then to record their lives. But archaeology goes beyond. It provides us with clues about common people, those communities that were what we call now minorities, that we can't... Uh, find in written sources. I consider myself an historian because I do history. I try to contribute to this knowledge about human past uh, societies, but through material culture, in this case, through trash, through the rubbish. You can read an article in Spanish that Marcos co-authored with his colleague Guillermo Garcia Contreras Ruiz about their research on the conversation. And if you want to learn more about the larger project the research was a part of, called Landscapes of Reconquest, we'll pop a link to both of those in the show notes. To end this issue, we've got some recommended reading from my colleague Nick Lair about a recent series of stories that I've been helping him out with about transgender youth in America. I'm Nick Lair, an arts and culture editor for The Conversation based in Providence, Rhode Island. As of April, 33 U.S. states had introduced more than 100 bills seeking to curb the rights of transgender people. Many seek to prevent trans children and teens from accessing specialized medical care. Follow the debates over trans kids, and you'll hear some people say that youth who change their gender identity are participating in a fad and that social media is the culprit. The history of trans youth offers some of the most compelling proof, though, that trans kids aren't some sort of new phenomenon. As part of a series we're running on trans youth, we commissioned articles by academics who have studied this history. Jules Gill-Peterson, an English professor at the University of Pittsburgh and the author of Histories of the Transgender Child, wrote for us about the American teens and young adults who, in the first half of the 20th century, ventured to Johns Hopkins Hospital which was then the only medical facility in the country for people questioning their sex and gender. In the papers of doctors and specialists, 
Peterson found stories of patients who felt gender dysphoria deep in their bones. We also ran an article by Avery Dame Griff, a visiting professor at Appalachian State University and the primary curator of the Queer Digital History Project. Dame Griff takes readers back to the internet's infancy, when bulletin board systems, email lists, and later GeoCities pages helped create some of the internet's first communities and support groups for trans teens. That young people with gender dysphoria in the 20th century, with scant social support and few resources, nonetheless sought help and advice from doctors and later strangers on the internet is a testament to the truth of their experiences. Nick Lair there in Rhode Island. You can find a link to those stories and some more information about the series in the show notes. That's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors Gregory Raiko, Eva Catalan, Martin LaMonica, Nick Lair and Stephen Kahn. And thank you to Alice Mason for our social media. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you want to learn more about any of the things we talked about on the show, there are links to further reading in the show notes. And you can also sign up for our newsletter. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend, Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Mao Lissetto. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Reno. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. 